Hello, my name is Paul Farron and welcome to this podcast brought to you by Film Ireland in partnership with Still Voices, a short film festival. We're delighted to talk to acclaimed director Terence Davies who will attend the 2021 festival for a special screening of his 1988 masterpiece, Distant Voices, Still Lives. Great pleasure to meet you, Terence. Thank you. And you're going to come over in November, I hear. Is fingers crossed, all going well. Yes. And you have a busy few months ahead of you yourself because um, you've got a new film out, Benediction. Yes. How long have you been working on this project? Um, just to, to tell our listeners, uh, it's about Sigrid, Siegfried Sassoon, one mm-hmm. of the great anti-war poets of World War One. I, I, I've just given the general sense of who he is. Yes. Uh, um, tell us some more. Well, it's. It's taken six years. I mean, uh, A, because when I was asked to do it, of of all the war poems, I I knew his least. Um, Although, ironically, um, when I went to drama school, uh, the audition was a piece of Shakespeare and a piece of your own choice. And I chose um, his poem called Concert Interpretation, which is one of a great comic poem, a gorgeous, gorgeous English, um, about the first performance of um, the Rite of Spring in England. And it had taken place the previous year in 1913 in Paris, and it caused a huge riot. Um, in Britain, of course, it, it, was, it was treated with a great deal of politeness and caution. Um, and he just describes really the, the entire audience waiting to hear um, this new piece. Um, and in the gallery, cargo to capacity, no tremors, bowed eruptions and alarms. They are listening to this not quite new audacity, as though it were by someone dead, like Brahms. <laughs> <laughs> but I, what also I didn't realize is, he, I started reading the uh, three massive biographies, this thick, um, he went everywhere. I mean, he knew everybody in the 20th century. I thought, oh, God, you know, what, how am I going to make sense of this? You know, after doing um, Emily Dickinson, who never went anywhere. You know? um, so I thought, well, I, after having read these three massive biographies, I thought, what are the things that I respond to in his life? Obviously, the war poetry, because that made him a great, a great poet. Um, the fact that he was gay. Um, but also what was a, a lot of gay men did that, that in his era, they married. Um, and then what was extraordinary, he became a Catholic. And having brought, been brought up a Catholic, why on earth did you do that? Talk about, you know, wanting guilt, you know. Um, but the, the thread for me was, I think he was looking for redemption. And unfortunately, you can't find redemption in other people or religions or anything else. If you don't find the redemption within yourself, you never achieve it. Um, and th- that's the most moving thing of all, the, the saddest thing of all, because I think he was not a happy man. Um, he treated his wife quite badly um, and chose to fall in love with the most awful man. Ivan Novello was awful, just awful. Um, and the only person he, he fell in love with it, but didn't consummate it, because was with Wilfred Owen. They met at Craig Lockhart in Scotland. And it's, it's, they never say anything, but you know that they love one another. And I think that was the great love of his life. And as you know, um, Owen uh, was killed a week before the end of the war. So uh, it was trying to find a thread 
through that very packed life um, and trying to create that period. What I was, do you mind if I keep on talking? I love what you, please keep on talking. The, the, the one thing that, I, the two things, one, how do you make the First World War? And even if you have billions of dollars, you cannot recreate what it was like in the trenches. As soon as you see the war footage, you cannot match that. And I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use a lot of war footage. But the, the other great cliche of um, films about the First World War from England is this Ed long Edwardian summer where everyone had these wonderful parties. Uh, great if you were wealthy, um, but if you had to work in a factory, it wasn't so glorious. So I thought I, I didn't want to use that cliche. So what I'll, I'll make the interiors as sumptuous as possible because that way, when you see the war footage, the horror of it is augmented. Is it sort of a, a, the superficiality of that distance from the actual horror of the events? Yes, and and also um, you can't recreate it. I mean, you just look at that footage, and it's extraordinary. You know, and it's unbearably moving. And the the most shocking thing of all, some of it is extremely beautiful. You must have seen Jackson's documentary recently. No, I Was didn't. That, I, 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 kept, I kept it more to um, the, uh, the first big documentary that used to be on television on a Friday night called The Great War. Um, yes. I, I, I chose most of it from that. And so, as you say, evoking such horror that we have seen done many, many times. I mean, most famously, I suppose, All Quiet on the Western Front. You, you, you certainly don't want to compete with that, but you still want people to feel that sensibility. Yes, yes, but the, the, what what is important in the end is the the price that was paid. That all these people were killed, and what for? I mean, that's what's the most shocking thing of all is that they were used as cannon fodder. You know, I mean, from both sides because both sides didn't know what they were doing. You know, I mean, they didn't realize it was the first great me mechanized war and the slaughter was unbearable, just unbearable. I and mean, how, how can you how can you lose 60,000 men in half an hour? I mean, and not think this is madness. You know, um, it's just madness. And I, I think even though more people were killed in the Second World War, for some reason, the statistics of those battles from, from the First World War still are so shocking. They're just unbearably shocking. It, it's, it's scary when you think that they were willing to push people out like that and also use the cowardice tickets so eagerly and so often among mm. soldiers. And, and also denying um, shell shock. I mean, a lot of... A lot of people in, in charge, especially Craig Lockhart, thought they were just cowards, that they were just being like that because they were afraid. Um, and these men were seriously, seriously damaged forever. I mean, some of them, not only physically, but mentally as well. And th there's a series of um, medical uh, film. It's taken in France, I think. Um, and they show one poor man, they, they show him um, a, an officer's cap. And he's just terrified. I mean, he's utterly terrified. Um, and to actually dismiss that as 
you know, some kind of cowardice is it's beyond belief. It's beyond belief because none of the combatants, none of the generals of the combatants knew what the hell they were doing. They, I mean, British generals haven't fought a war apart from the South African War since Napoleon. You know, I mean, there was still cavalry in the First World War. So up against tanks and mustard gas. Yes. Um, but, but as you said, Sassoon was totally scarred by the war for the rest of his life. And he had a quite, I think he had a long life, didn't he? I think he lived till... Yes, yes, he did. 80. He was, it was in his 80s, I think, when he died. He died of pancreatic cancer. But it was a long life. Um, but I don't think a happy one. And and this tragedy of the man, and you, you seem to say that uh, obviously he, he was uh, a good man who did terrible things. I think it's a, not a constant thing in your work that you never judge people who do terrible things. You present them. Would that be part of what you were investigating, how he could yeah. beat so many things? Yes, I, I hope so, because I don't think it's... Um, it's not an attack on him at all. It, not at all. Um, but I've tried to show it in such a way, like when he gets married, She's as naive as he is. Because in, in real life, she said, he said, I've only ever had uh, affairs with men. And she says, well, Stephen Tennant, who was one of his lovers, um, she, he's told me all that I need to know. I mean, and they go into that with that level of naivety. I mean, the dialogue I put into their mouths, which is mine, not theirs. He says, if I were selfish enough, I would ask you to marry me. And she says, if, if I were silly enough I would accept and but they 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 do accept it but I, I wanted to show that he he had he was not a he was not a bad man I think Ivan Novello was I mean Ivan Novello was just ruthless sexually as well I mean and that and I think there will be people who say I'm, I've just done a hatchet job on um, Ivan Novello but he was unpleasant but I, I I've tried to show where Sassoon is concerned. Decently a good man, basically a good man, but there are areas of his life when he's not, he's not so nice, not so nice to his wife. He's not so nice to his son. You know, he's, he isn't. Um, but also what I've tried to do, I've, I've, I've tried to show the, the people he did care about who were not uh, sexual. Uh, there was not a sexual thing to it, like Robbie Robson. Uh, Robbie Robson, um, who was who had helped, who had helped Oscar Wilde. You know, I mean, when it was dangerous to do that, um, and he he was a lovely man and clearly loves Robbie. I mean, they love each other um, in a genuine fraternal way, um, and they, he the only fall, he only falls out with him temporarily because you know um, his statement was read out on the floor of the house because Robbie Robson asked. Winston Churchill's secretary to do that. And he says, because I, we didn't want you to be um, court-martial. You could have been shot. And he says, well, you know, that was, a, that was a risk I was prepared to take. And Robbie Robson says, but we weren't. And I think there's a lot of, uh, I hope there's a number of jokes in there as well. So if when you see it, I'll make sure you have your laugh-o-meter with you. <laughs> Well, this, uh, I think all of your films are steeped in humour, no matter how sad or kind of uh, melancholic they, they get. 
humor is always part of uh, your work um whether it be your biographical work or even even stuff like deep blue sea has a has a humor in in its place well i think you've got you've got to have humor you've got to have humor. i mean i come from liverpool and i'm irish so what else would you expect <laughs> But that's just it. Uh, I, I was looking at um, Distant Voices Still Lives and uh, there's a woman in it. They kept, the woman who plays Mickey. Mm. I, I know her. <laughs> Do you? And I, oh, the, no, I mean, I know her. You know, I know that character. We have oh. them in Dublin by the bucket load. <laughs> it's very much a Dublin inner city personality. Um, it's very much of the, the I, I live in the Liberties in Dublin. And it's it's that as well. It's I've only been to Liverpool once with my girlfriend, and that part of the world always reminds me of when you meet these people and talk to them, people from Liverpool or Manchester. I always feel I'm back in Dublin again, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, after the influx of uh, the Irish uh, in the 1840s because of the, the potato famine, uh, uh, people originally in Liverpool spoke with a Lancashire accent, but the Scouse accent is a mixture of both. And, and even even my mother used to use uh, I mean she's a Slevine, which is the most wonderful <laughs> word. Um, and she used to sing when we'd have a few drinks, um, Kevin Barry, and I was used to cry. Um, uh, because her father was um, Michael O'Brien. He came from Louth, just outside Dublin. Um, so I'm I'm Irish through my mother. In my research, I uh, found out that you uh, uh, Alexander McKendrick was one of your tutors. Mm a favourite filmmaker of mine. And you made an interesting observation about how his films were about innocence subverting everybody else or almost causing tragedy with everybody around them. Uh, Does this kind of aspect interest you a lot, of innocence enduring the world? Um, I suppose uh, where where McKendrick is concerned, it it is the innocence that do all the destruction. And I mean, the greatest example, of course, is the lady killers, where this little old woman, she doesn't do anything, but they all kill one another, which is just glorious. It's just glorious. Because I said this, I said that to him. I said, it's the innocent who seems to promote by accident all the, all, all the things that go on in, in your film. And he said, he said, someone else has just said that. He said, I said, I didn't mean it in a horrible way. I, th- I think it's a very interesting idea do you think he was genuinely surprised though because if you look at um a high wind to jamaica and sammy going south that's exactly what they're about uh sammy going south is a kind of uh, more suspect work because it was interfered with by the producer and i don't think mckendrick got his fingerprints over it enough because he had a much darker film to tell i think than the one that got finally made though it's still a fantastic film and how you went to Jamaica is certainly about innocence. In a, it's almost a Lord of the Flies tale. Yes, but but, but the, the real irony is that um, the Lady Killers was written by an American, William Rose. That's right, yeah. You know, and what it's about actually is, if you really look at it, it's about the end of empire. All those people in that gang are from different parts of uh, British society, and they're all failures. And there's one wonderful moment, which I think is one of the great moments of, of, of that, that is almost unbearably moving when um, Katie Johnson comes up and says, I haven't heard that played since I was a girl. It's the Boccherini menu word. And she says, um, it was at my 21st birthday party and they played it then. 
And then someone came in and said, the old queen is dead. And then my party was over in Pangbourne all those years ago. Oh, it pierces your heart. You see an entire life. You see an entire life. It's just the most wonderful speech. And also, if you think about its contemporary, if you could get a brain to think in the contemporary fashion of the time, it's Edwardian England versus this dark little Britain that has emerged out of the war and the yeah. trashed economy. Yes. I mean, yes. I mean, Peter Sellers' Teddy Boy is the epitome of yes. it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it's so wonderful. Um, it's just wonderful. Um, and I remember we, we, he was lecturing on the third man and it was a revolution. I mean, you, you realise you'd never watched it properly before. I mean, he, it, he was a, a, a natural teacher. And I was making my, um, my graduation piece, which was um, the second part of the trilogy, Madonna and Child. And I, I, I didn't go in this particular Friday because I had flu. And someone met him coming out of the cutting room. And they said, what have you been to see, Mr. McKendrick? He said, Madonna and Child. And they said, it's a gay movie, isn't it? And he said, not at the moment. <laughs> isn't that wonderful? Oh, a sort of compliment in a way. Yes. They're the other, they're the other one that that's, is an insult, but it's so, it's so insulting, it's wonderful. And when the trilogy was shown in America, this man said, these films making Mar Bergman look like Jerry Lewis. Who said that? That's a fantastic quote. <laughs> An American journalist. Unforgettable. You, you, you got into directing because you were told that you had to direct your script. To, to, and I was uh, watching a re an interview with you recently where, wow, you, you fought some hard doubts from people and you found a great ally in an editor, Sarah. I can't remember her surname, but she was your Ellis. editor. Sarah Ellis. To have an ally like that must have been a huge boon when you felt such doubts. Yet you did know what you were doing, but people were undermining you because of their own so-called experience. Well, it was a baptism by fire. I mean, I was at drama school, actually, because I'd always wanted to write an act. No, but I'd written the first part of the trilogy, it was called Children. Um, everybody turned it down. I sent it everywhere. Everyone turned it down. And I used to go home once every three weeks because I was on a ground and I could only afford to go home once every three weeks. And on Friday nights on BBC One was a thing called Cinema Now. And they had a, a, a feature about the BFI production board. So off I sent my script. And six months later, they said, they said to come down and they, they had this tiny office just outside um, Waterloo Station in London. And it was Mamoun Hassan, who was one of the great unsung heroes of British cinema. He said, you have eight and a half thousand pounds, not a penny more, you will direct. I said, I've never directed because now's your chance. And apart from the cameraman, that crew hated the film and they told me every single day for three weeks. So we got back and um, somehow the sound man had got the job as editing it. It was a disaster. An absolute disaster. And by that time, um, Mamoun had left and Peter Sainsbury had taken over. And I said, well, I went in to see him. I said, You've wa you have wasted eight and a half thousand pounds. In 1973, that was a lot of money. He said, well, would you go back into the country? And I said, you're just sending good money after bad. He said, well, would you go in if I could find someone? And I said, yes, all right. And he said, well, I'm called Sarah Ellis and we came in and she said what what is 
the bit that you hate most that's not been done as you had seen it. I said, well, it's the ending of the little boy at the window and coming out and mixing, coming out like this. She said, well, you tell me how you see it. So I did. And she said, well, I'll send it off to the labs because those days it had to go to the labs with yeah. results. Took two days. I said, I think you're wrong. She said, came back two days later. She ran it and she said, you were right. And I, I wanted to adopt her legally. I was so grateful. That woman was just so lovely, but it was a baptism by fire, I can tell you. Well, yeah, I mean, you earned an major epiphany to, to, to and obviously you're a great respecter of what storytelling is in the edit suite, that other part of the storytelling. But what's important, in fact, is not so much the storytelling. Um, that obviously is important. You've got to tell a story of some form or other. But it's what happens emotionally next that's more interesting than what yes. happens literally next. There's nothing interesting about that, you know. Um, and I, I, I said, I, I would say, well, I feel that we should go there. Um, I still think I should have been a bit more careful with that very long two minutes and 20 seconds shot on a bus. I wouldn't dare do it now. It's interminable. But you see, you get away with it now because the equipment's smaller. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that's the thing, as you said, right, it's, it's, it's storytelling. And I, I, I meant that is in, it's the moods and that those untangible things. I mean, I, I do feel you're a, a poet of cinema oh, and not everyone can have that said about them. And that's the hardest thing in the world. You've got this huge machinery to create tender moments and small things. I'm very sensitive to atmosphere um, for a simple reason. You know, my father was extremely violent. Um, and uh, I was a child, I was like five, six, and I ran in and made a noise, you know, because children do. And he just kicked me from one end of the house to the other. I thought, that's a mistake I won't make a second time. But what he'd do, he'd go into these silences. And these silences would not last for 10 minutes. Or they would last for hours. And then he'd erupt. So I'm extremely aware of atmosphere. Yeah. Um, and the one thing I cannot bear, if someone gives me the cold shoulder, yeah. I, I, I say, look, please don't do that. If I've done something wrong, please tell me, and I will apologise. If I haven't done anything wrong, you'll get you'll get an argument, but don't do that. And when anyone does does that, and it's it's happened now and then, I literally just want to get up and go home because it destroys my inside. Even now, I go into a room or say full of people, and I know who's had the row. I I. It's instinctive, and I feel all on edge. And I think it's got nothing at all to do with me. Why am I? Why am I on edge? But it was immense survival when I was a child. Literally, honestly. Um, yes. But if anyone does it now, I, I say you do it a second time, and you really, you really be sorry. I kid you not. <laughs> uh, but that depiction in this uh, voice still lives of your father by Pete Postlethwaite. It's very interesting how people remember it in such, I mean, it is very dark, but those moments, four or five of those moments, and they're very short, and they have such an impact. And, you know, filmmaking is fragments tying together an essence of a story, but they are very small fragments that create such a huge impact on the rest of that story. 
The, the irony is, though, um, when he's tender, it's, it's out of sheer sentimentality. I mean, if he really loved his children, he wouldn't have treated them like that. You know, um, we could all be sentimental. And it's Joyce who, who said sentimentality is unearned emotion. And he was right. He, he, my father was, as, like most bullies, sentimental. Yeah, no, I was going to say, uh, it, it's, a, it's a weapon of a bully is the sentimentality. Yeah, yeah. One thing that's at the heart of your work is endurance, I found. People fighting their way through and trying to maintain that aspect of who they are within the formality of a society or within the restrictions of who they can be. Would that be something that you'd feel is, is any truth to it? Yes, I think there's a great deal of truth in that because the, that's me, I think. It's me as well. Um, I think I'm drawn to people who are outside, in some way, are outsiders. I'm an outsider. You know, um, I observed all the time. And when you're the youngest of seven children, you just listen. I listened all the time. Um, I, but when you're a child, you don't realize you're doing that. You just. Do, but when you get older and you realize that, you realize two things. One, that in order to be able to look at other things happening, you have to be an outsider. But the outsiders always get ignored. And that's very, very hard. I just wish I could not do that but i mean at the at the height of any kind of ecstasy i knew even as a child it's it's ending even at the apex of that i knew it was ending um and the cinema because i thought what i saw was absolutely true and real it didn't in cinema it didn't do that and in, in a kind of way, you were kind of safe. And I think my attitude to the cinema was as deep as my Catholicism. I was very, very, I was very, very fervid. What a complete waste of time, you know, um, praying until my knees bled. What for? You know, and every time I prayed, you know, God was out, you know, probably gab kids or somewhere. Um, yeah. So I know what I, and I still even now, I, I know I'm, not part of what part of life in the true sense. I'm, I'm very conscious of that. Um, and that I do find as I get older, much harder to bear. I suppose you're going to Bellamont. For a week. How delicious. I asked him here on purpose for you. Why don't you say it? I have the reputation for being on the hunt for a husband. Isn't marriage your vocation? Isn't it what you're all brought up for? I certainly haven't succeeded. But you will marry someone very rich. I generally get what I want in life. Now all I want is the woman. Miss Lily Bart as Summer by Watto. It is a pity, though, that Lily makes herself so conspicuous. I've never seen you look more lovely. You're rather a responsibility in such a scandalous place after midnight. He wouldn't stay with her 10 minutes if he knew. Knew? If he had positive proof. I have something you might like to see. I have no idea why you have brought these letters. To sell them. A clever woman would know just when to play her cards right. But Lily's never been very clever in that way. You cannot want this! I need your help. The only way I can help you is by loving you. Well, that isn't playing fair, Lily. You're dodging the rules of the game, and now you've got to pay. I will be disgraced! I consider that you are disgraced. Husbands are expected to be like money, influential but silent. 
I know that there have been times when you've been worried. A married man should not have the burden of being seen alone with a single woman. If you wish to keep your reputation intact, tell him nothing. Talk about love making people jealous. It's nothing to social ambition. Why is it that when we meet, we always play this elaborate game? I mean, look at the House of Birth with Edith Wharton adaptation you did, which is really beautiful. It's about a woman trying to fight men at their own game, pretty much, yeah. and, and and also herself. She's. Yes. I mean, it's it's a savage satire, and the the tragedy is, um, Lily Bart thinks she knows the rules of the game, and she has no idea. There are people like Bertha around who are infinitely better at it, and she literally is thinks that she knows it. You've got to, if you're going to play the game, you've got to know the rules, you know, and you've got to play them ruthlessly. Um, and it's over two years that woman is destroyed. And at the beginning of it, she's not actually that attractive. She's venal and on the lookout for a rich husband. And gradually through that novel, she finds her integrity. And of course, that's the very thing that destroys her because these all these other people haven't got any integrity of any kind. They're just ruthless, you know, and that's its, that's its tragedy. I suppose I, I am drawn to victims because I was bullied a lot at school and my heart goes out to them. I mean, if I had a child and I don't have children and they were bullied, I'd kill the bully. I'd go and I'd kill them. You know, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't ask anybody, I'd just strangle them. You know, and when I hit, when people say they think their child is being bullied, so you've got to stop it. You've got to go into the school and say to this kid, you know, if you do it again, I'm going to rip your head off. Because that's all they understand. That's all they understand. Um, so I'm, I'm drawn to people um, who have that vulnerability, either in the face of life, like Emily Dickinson. Emily Dickinson, I think, was terrified of life. Um, that's why she didn't go anywhere, um, but wrote some of the greatest poetry um, that in English. Um, so I part of me is drawn to that. Um, uh, and there is that also, that very odd English thing of um, always wanting to be on the side of the underdog, you know, and, and it, is a, it is a very English thing. Yes, yes. Uh, but t tell me this, uh, you started out as an actor, you wanted to be an actor and then you be you wrote and then you directed. How do you feel that that helped you as a director of actors? Was it useful? Oh, enormously. Because uh, I, I only have acted on an amateur basis uh, and, and obviously when I was at drama school, it gave me an, a lot of insight, you know, um, because I know I've had to do it myself. You structure um, uh, a character from what you're given. Um, that's that's the start, but it's much more difficult in film because it's it's not continuous. You know, it's all over the place because you do it for logistics. That makes that the acting in films the hardest of all. It's the hardest of all. Um, so that my sympathies are there, but also you know I won't put up with mannerism. You know, I mean, as soon as I start seeing mannerism, no, you mustn't do that because you it looks as though you're acting. You know, and I don't believe it. If it's felt, it'll be true. And you do things that you're not aware of, but the very fact that you're not aware of them makes them powerful. 
Um, so I, I know what it's like. I'm on their side, but I won't put up with mannerism. That really does anger me. The, the worst of all is from America, where you say half the line, you pause, you go back to the beginning of the line, and then say, I said, you must not do that. I don't write dialogue like that. Because that, that delivery of dialogue like that does not make it real. It makes it completely mannered. Nobody talks like that. Nobody. Where do you think they picked up all these bad habits? Oh, it's 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 America, and we're seeing now the that the the methods school of acting is now completely ossified, and that's what you get now. I mean, it, you, there's no, you can't say anything new in that now. When it first came out, I mean, it was revelatory. I mean, to see it on the waterfront, at the yeah. and it was made at the same time as Young at Heart with Doris Day, you know, was revelatory revelatory and some wonderful actors you know people like lee j cobb you know i mean who is terrifying because it's so good but it starts to become mannered i mean james dean is unwatchable unwatchable i i, I agree with that i totally agree with that uh, east of eden is uh, a, a astronic nightmare yeah. and that's a great it's a great that's a great tale you know uh, so so the having done it myself i can say look You've got to say this thing, this line on a single breath, because if I can do it, you can. And no, but and and lots of sort of, I, I try and write in the silences and the pauses as well. Not as bad as Pinter, I have to say, <laughs> where some poor actor paused. He said, "No, that's a silence," and he made a silence. No, that's a pause. Paul, poor sod. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you see, it's uh, I, I suppose it's a harder one to explain, isn't it? <laughs> the pause and why. Yes. But, but also to, to say to the actors, look, play the pause. And if it's right, you'll know and I'll know because I'll see it. And when it's, there are some exquisite play, playing in the earlier part of Benediction between uh, Ben Daniels and Jack Lard. He plays um, the doctor. And I just said, you know, just play the silences. And it, I just said on one, this is sublime. I mean, it's it's flawless. I have nothing to say. Yeah, it, it, it's the same principle. If you know when an actor is just saying words and that there's no thought press process going on before they've actually said anything, and you it's instant. You in, you instinctively feel it. it. It's like I'm not a musician, although I, I love music very much. But the real great interpretations, they play what's in between the notes because that's held. And it's what, it, when you can't, there's a fraction of a second where you don't know. Then you do, because it's obviously, it's the next continuous thing, but there's a fraction of a second when you don't know. And that's that's what you we should all move towards. And and like music, it should be like music, that it's, a, it's, a, it's visceral and you go on that journey as soon as you hear the opening bars of, of a symphony you love. If you don't like certain music, then you can't go on, I mean, I can't go on the journey with Wagner. You know, it's interminable and no jokes. Oh, it goes on for days. You know, it's agony, it's absolute agony. But I mean, I love Bruckner and there are people who, my friends who said, oh, what, what do you see in mean, Like, there's no tunes. I said, but they are glorious tunes. They're glorious. <laughs> so it's, you've got, it's, there's got to be passion and there's got to be humor. 
if without those, you might as well stay at home and watch murder, she wrote. <laughs> Which I do. <laughs> watch all the dead people. <laughs> Angela Lansbury can do no wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> I had the pleasure of meeting her on Hapenny Bridge in Dublin one time when she was shooting. I don't even know what she was filming. And she happened to be standing on the bridge. It was a surreal moment. I was crossing the bridge with a big bunch of flowers for my mother. And she said, what lovely flowers. Made my month. <laughs> Who did you kill to get them? <laughs> you had an amazing dry period and getting funding for a long time, and it was you, you kind of broke it with um, of time in the city. Uh, obviously, you were working on a lot of projects there. You did some radio work as well. Um, did, did you enjoy radio? Did it, did that kind of uh, open up new levels of thinking creatively for you? Well, I, when I was. Um before I went to drama school, I, I, there was a lovely uh, producer called um, Jack. Oh, it's an awful, I, I've forgotten his name. He was at Radio Merseyside and he, he took all my work and I used to read them and he put them on. Uh, Jim Black, Jim Black in school. So I'd, I'd done it on radio, I really did love radio. Um, and so, yes, I, 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 I've, I've done three things for it. I, I did, um, what have I done now? The Waves, and then two of my own pieces, The Walk to the Paradise Garden and Intensive Care. Now, I, I, I do love it. And when we were doing The Waves, um, the book, as you know, it's about six people who are together. They have these huge monologues. Um, and they said, we couldn't have them all in the, in the same studio at the same time. I said, well, we can't re record them separately. Th this, is, this has to be... They have to be all together. Um, so they cut a day off and we got to do it in three days. Um, and they were wonderful. They, they really brought it to life. I, I, I said, you've got to do that. But when we were cutting it, I, I said to Polly Thomas, who's a lovely producer, we've got to cut it like film. That line doesn't mean anything. We'll take that out. We've got to leave that in. Take out this little bit. You know, and it really does work. Um, so I, I've, I haven't done any, anything for ages, but I mean, I just couldn't get any work. Nobody was interested. And thank God, you know, Hurricane Films in Liverpool got in touch and said, would I do um, Of Time in the City? And I initially said no. But why I was said, that? I said, oh God, you know, I have, why have I said yes? I thought I'm gonna ring and say no. Um, and we were, my, John and I were driving down by the embankment and I, 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 we stopped at the lights. And I remember in the late 50s, a, a lot of slums were being torn down, new estates being built. And I thought, if I use that, and the folks who live on the hill, we've got a sequence, we've got a film. And he rang up, I said, we've got a film. So the idea was put in your head and you went to the right place and suddenly you, you felt it and you, your heart mm. went for it. it I, I watched it uh, recently. It's, it's a very, very beautiful documentary. Oh, thank you. V very, very funny, by the way. <laughs> uh, we laughed and we cried. It, it's, it's beautiful. Um, and I said, oh, wow, it's great to see he's a royal basher as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, what a load of parasites they are. Oh, oh yes. Just With get rid of them. But such a, such a love letter to Liverpool and, and the time gone past. And as I said, I think you could say anyone who understands the city and, and that kind of growth, it's it's everywhere. It has a very international archetypal feel to it. But when things have gone, um, and, and they, 
a lot of the stuff, the, the, the slums were awful. But, you know, when I got my first job uh, as a lowly, lowly clerk in a shipping office, there were these wonderful little, like Temp Tempest Hay and Leather Lane and wonderful names, that shipping, like Vocht and Son, you know, oh, just wonderful. And it seems so alive. I'm, and although I, do, I started to go off pop music when I was 15 or 16, there was an enormous sense of electricity in the air. Even I felt it. It there just was. It was a, a an energy that's long gone now. I mean, so much of it has been rebuilt, and you know, you could be anywhere. Yeah. The architecture, you just think, yeah. So what? You know, early nothing. <laughs> <laughs> How long were you working on that documentary? You I mean, there's a, there's a huge amount of material that you worked with. Did you have a team? Um, yes, I did. Um, we we shot some uh, material ourselves. I, I, I had this fantastic archivist called Jim D Davison who did all the archival material for us, and this other this great um, clearer of music called Ian Neal. Um, and two things happened towards towards the end. Um, we had to ask the estate of Peggy Lee, could we use it? because that was over that entire sequence. And we didn't hear until a day before the end of the card. And they said, yes. A huge sigh of relief. Then someone else said, well, you realize we've got to do the same with Elliot because Elliot didn't like his poetry. Oh, oh God. Well, I, I knew that it had been used in a, in a television documentary by um, John Betjeman called Bird's Eye View. So there, there was a precedent. Again, we had to wait and wait and wait. And then they finally said, yes, because I don't know what we would have done, quite frankly. And um, then the third thing that happened was uh, the Fernandes says, you, we do not want to hear your voice. You've got to re-record it. Okay, so we'll, oh. I, I said, but I, three of my own poems are in and I want, to, I want to read them and I want to read the Elliot because I know the Elliot intimately. Um, and we got this someone to, to read the script uh, uh, over the film. And the, the producer just said, sorry, no, it's got to be Terence. It just doesn't work. And only one of the finances had the, the grace to say afterwards, well, you were right. Um, the other two never said anything. Um, but that sort of thing, they, they, it leaps out of you and you just think, oh, Lord, you know. Um, oh, Lord. <laughs> I, I was this purely from a... Was that an accountant's point of view that if there's a name narrator, it, it will get sold? Is that the attitude? Or are they just not like that your your delivery? I've, I've no idea. That's what they said. And then basically, um, Sol and Roy said, no, it's got to be Terence. Um, but there's always someone. I mean, with S Sunset Song, I mean, we got a, someone, and I think from Scotland, said Peter Mullen wasn't Scottish enough. I said, he was <laughs> born in Glasgow. You don't get more Scottish than that. <laughs> There's always someone. And who is the Scots expert? <laughs> oh, God knows. God. But I mean, it's honestly, that's what was said. You just think, have I heard that? Have I heard that? Idiotic. But there's always someone who wants to tell you, like, we, were having, we finished it, we had a nice showing in Liverpool, and we went and had a drink. And I could always tell who's going to pounce on me. I just, I looked around and thought, these two guys at the bar, I thought, 
it'll be them. Sure enough. Could we have a word? Miss Snow said yes. Well, we thought that halfway through the film, you lost the dramatic thrust. I said, how do I really? God, how clumsy of me. Oh, dramatic trust experts are the worst. (laughs) (laughs) God knows, I never go, I never leave home without it normally. But again, you're the writer, director of all your work. You've never uh, worked with another writer. And I was reading your scripts recently and the way you work. And I've got your uh, modest pageant edition from 1992. And it's a beautiful introduction. If I need to do any research, it's all on three pages there. You talking about your method and the way you... you, uh, you write your scripts because you write your shots and you have a sense of them. And you do two drafts. Three. If you're in Hollywood, oh, no, three, three now, is it? Okay. With, with, with a polish. Yes. So, <laughs> so I, I think Kurosawa said it himself. He said, if you want to direct, go and get a bit of pen and a bit of paper. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you very much do work very much on the page and I have everything ready. There's no kind of t- chance, well, there's chance taken, but you've got a very strong sense of what you want. Yes, because uh, I write everything by longhand, because um, I just do. Um, and then when we go on the, um, when we go on set, I know every, I know every setup in the film. I know every shot. Um, so that if something happens that you can't have a place that you wanted, you can very quickly improvise uh, because you know what the shots are. And it was Bergman who said, you can only improvise if you've prepared. And I do prepare very, very well. Um, so, because it's the only way I can do it, you know, uh, because it, it, it also, because I don't have large budgets, it saves time. You know, you can go into a, um, a location and say, I want this room and the shots are here, here and here. We don't see the fourth wall, you know, so things like that. That actually sa- saves a great deal of time and money because you, you don't have to dress everything. Sometimes you say, sorry, we see every part of this room, you've got to dress everything. Um, so it, so it, it saves money in the end. The only thing that it can't do is give you good weather. And sometimes, you know, you see a, 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 a sequence in lovely weather and it's overcast and you can't stand by for two days to wait for good weather. You just can't. And that is, that's the only thing that uh, uh, irks me because I, I'm not very, I'm not very lucky with weather. <laughs> um, regarding scale and the evolving of more epic shots, do you think that the principle stays the same or would you find them more challenging? I said there's some no. beautiful larger scale shots in um, uh, the House of Mirth. Or you I, make I, it feel that way, definitely. They, they have to be worked out beforehand. You, they just have to be, um, especially if the camera's moving, you know, um, on, a, on say a crane and a track, which we had in this film, you've, you've got to know what you're doing. Um, you can't just improvise that. Um, no, it just gives, it, it gives you a really sound base. It's like going, an actor going on a stage. They've got to breathe properly. You've just got to breathe properly, and and that and, and the preparation of how they see that character and and its architecture. You do the same visually, and and if you get it right, it it's a joy because you know you think fine. Um, I I this is it. This is it. Sometimes it doesn't work. I mean, we were shooting um, in Luxembourg, Sunset Song, and the, 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 when the young lad is going to be shot for desertion, I done it on, you know, in this um, cloud up field a little 
harder than the firing squad. Well, you can't do that to a field. Because I didn't know that if you do that to a field, it's infertile for five years. Now, I didn't know that. So this farmer said, but you can have this little patch. That's all you can have. And Andy Harris said, I've, I've seen this railway siding. Would you come and look at it? And I said, okay, because this is not how it's written. So I went and looked at this railway siding. I said, I said, well, I'll go down on the platform. Can you just let me go on the platform on my own? And as I went down the platform, there was a little cutout. I said, give me 20 minutes. And I rewrote this, this entire sequence just because it was suddenly right. And you think, yes, I know. I know I can do it now. But you can only do that if you know what's gone before and after. Yeah. They're the joys of filmmaking, though, finding things that, as you say, that you're prepared to find. Or, or what, what yeah. the actors do with lines that you hadn't thought of. That I find so thrilling. I, I mean, the, the ending of Benediction is, is uh, there's a Wilfred Owen poem called Disabled. And I'd always said it's extremely elegiac. The, the closing lines are, um, how cold and late it is. Why don't they come and put him into bed? Why don't they come? That's, those are the lines. And Jack read it like this. How cold and late it is. Why don't they come and put him into bed? Why don't they come? It just pierced my heart. It just pierced my heart. And of course, you, you, you've also got the, the other thing that's really important. Is you've got to know when not to direct. Yes. That's really important. Just think, I don't need to do very much today because they're really on the ball. Would you be, how much would you rely on rehearsal or feel that you need to rehearse? Does it depend on the actor or the scene or is it, no, how long I, is a piece of string? Um, no, well, what I've always done is we get the actors on, say, this is the action. Um, uh, this is where the cameras are. We're shooting this way, then that way. Um, then you say that to the, the heads of department. They come on rehearse it for a very short time and usually do it under seven takes. I mean, the average take number of takes in Benediction is four. Really um, sometimes they'll come on the second, we go straight away and say, yeah. Or they come and I think, would you like to go straight away today? And they say, yeah, no rehearsal, just do it. Um, but that's got to be felt. That's got to be felt. Um, you can't do that all the time. Sometimes you, you've just got to wait. Um, and sometimes things get in the way that... Um, you haven't thought of, I mean, th there's a great deal of supposed smoke when we were shooting um, Siegfried going to battle and the wind was in the constant opposite direction. This poor man with a smoke machine, I felt so sorry for him because every time we started, the wind blew it in another way. I said, could you do something with it? And very cryptically said, I could plug it in. least I'm not going to ask. So things like that that you can't control. Yeah, oh, that's it. but uh, also production designers. When you've worked with production designers, uh, and you do amazing things with production designers, there's no doubting that it's it's all a part of the personality and the character of of the people that are there. Um, how deep are your conversations? Because I know you've got such a strong attitude about what you feel is needs to be represented in in the minute of all your your locations. Well, if, if you, what, what you've got to do, you've got to work out the look that you want. 
Um, and, and with um, Sunset Song, it, it was Andy Harris who introduced me to um, a, a, a Danish painter called Hammershoi. Um, which is like a sort of Scandinavian Vermeer, um, lots of empty rooms, windows open and doors open, but nothing else, or a woman in it with her back to the viewer. And I said, it's got to look like that. I mean, it's just got to look like that. Um, and, and when you're talking about other things, makeup, I don't want them to look as though they're made up. They've got to look as though they wear the clothes. There's nothing worse than everyone looking pristine all the time. It's just boring. It's just boring. There are times when they have got to look pristine. There's other times when they've just got to look as though they, they wear it. And, and getting that from the right people, um, drawing that out is wonderful because they do other things mm. as well. And you've got to give them each of the head of the bombs, you've got to give them enough freedom to bring their ideas, because you can't just tell them what to do. That's not right. Um, it's the same with makeup. We had a wonderful makeup artist. Uh, she put the makeup as, as you can't tell. You literally cannot tell that they're made up. I mean, it's so good. Um, and that's always exciting that other people are bringing things to it that I can't bring because I'm not a makeup artist. I'm not a costume designer. You know, um, I'm none of those things, but those those people come and uh, magic happens when they do it together. You know, that's what you, that's what you try to do. You try to make it magic because that's what it is really. They're little bits of magic, that's all. This is just ca catching things. Yes, and sometimes, you know, um, that it, it, it'll be something that, say, the editor does. I mean, for instance, there's, there's a scene in Benediction where he's looking at his mother, the, the, you know, they're just reading Mother Fire. And there's a wonderful late poem that he wrote about his mother, which is really just lovely. Um, and then that scene ends, and the scene continues. And Alex said, well, I've changed a little bit. So, okay, fine, that's it. And she put in the, the other part of the shot, the poem he wrote to his brother. I mean, that's just perfect. I mean, you, I said, Alex, it's just right. Just at the very beginning, she said, I'll put the title further down. And it works. And that I love. I just think that's, you know, you can feel it when it works and you can feel it when it doesn't. But you haven't lost any of your passion. <laughs> I was watching you there and your heart and it's exciting to listen to you talking about it. I don't get out a lot. <laughs> and then when you do, you go to Luxembourg. <laughs> yes, I do. And, and I, I drink Lucasade as if there's no tomorrow. Oh, it's bad habits. But Luxembourg's actually a fantastic little country. I, I love Luxembourg. It's, it's a fascinating yeah, but little place. Well, <laughs> well, 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 we had, under the treaty, we had to have a certain number of actors from Luxembourg. Oh, that would have been fun. <laughs> and this actor, I didn't know he was an actor. We, we were setting up, waiting for these actors to come. And he was dressed like sort of in an Edwardian costume. I thought, oh, it must be uh, some kind of conference. Anyway, he's the first actor that comes in. And he looks, literally, it was Edwardian costume with this very, very, very thick Luxembourg accent. And I said, well, you know, the character's supposed to be Scottish. And he said, my Scottish accent isn't very good. Yes, I said, yes, I noticed that. And, and he looked like Toulouse Lautrec. And I could... <laughs> I could see Peter Sellers going, it's a berm, it's a berm. And the four people that we chose were all Irish. <laughs> all of them living in Luxembourg. Yes, and, and those, those were the four people, they were 
Irish. That's hilarious. <laughs> so Benediction is opening in Toronto, am I right? Yes. I haven't seen it yet on a really big screen. And that's mm. always nice. That's always nice to see it properly. <laughs> of course. And um, is it a release soon after? Um, no, it's going in the competition at uh, San Sebastian, and then it's going to the London Film Festival, and I think it opens after that. So I think it'll probably be November or December, something like that. I think. I haven't got a date oh. yet, though. And do you have anything planned for, uh, for uh, anything next after um, that? Yes, I have. I, I, I discovered um, many years ago, um, watching on BBC One in the afternoon, Letter from an Unknown Woman, which is one of the great films about romantic love. Um, and it was written by a man called Stefan Zweig. And about 10 years ago, he came out of copyright. And I had been told that Beware Pity was his great novel. So I bought, I bought that and another one. Um, and I really struggled with Beware Pity. After 50 pages, I thought, I'm sorry. It, it's just a hard go. I've been reading him recently as well, um, The Invisible Collection. And it's kind of very worthy. I think I, mean, I don't know if you like the Wes Anderson film Grand Budapest, but it was a fantastic love letter to Stefan Zweig. But he's a harder read today, isn't he? Mm, but I had bought The Post Office Girl, and that I couldn't put down. And we're hoping to do that ah. in Austria next year. Another tragic man. He's, a, he's an interesting biography. Yes, yes. Killed himself and his wife you know, in Rio de Janeiro. You know? yeah. But again, it's about... It's about someone who is outside of, in fact, the post, the post office girl is, um, it's a Cinderella story without a happy ending. It's got the most wonderful ambiguous ending. And I said, we have got to keep this. This ending does not get altered. You take your life in your hands if you alter it. Yeah, but that's, uh, Zwig is, as you say, he's just about outsiders. So I think everything he does is about outsiders. Yes. Uh, and I mean, even in Letter from an Unknown Woman, which is a novella, I mean, at the, at the end of it, the man doesn't remember who she is anyway. It's, that's too cruel, you know. It's too cruel, you know. It, what what Ophuls does with it in the film? Is, who adapted? Uh, was that adapted for? It was not adapted to the big screen in Hollywood. Yes, it was. It was nineteen forty nine. It was Joan Fontaine was, and Louis Jordan, Max Ophuls. I think it had a more uh, happy ending. <laughs> yes, I, I mean, but it was in the book. I see the man doesn't remember her at all. And you, yeah. you, you've just got to have him remember. You've just got to. Well, let, look, let's wrap it up. Um, it's been a great, great pleasure. Um, <laughs> would you like to say it to the, the guys at the Film Festival, a little message to the guys at the Still Voices Festival? It'd yes. be a nice way to wrap it up. Yes, well, I would like to very much thank Ronan um, for A, um, at arranging this, but also for saying, calling the festival Still Lives. It was a real compliment. And I hope I can come to Ireland, um, where I can say Sleeveen and people will know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Terence, a great pleasure. I, I hope wonderful things happen to Benediction and I look forward to your Stefan Zwig adaptation. And thank you so much for this interview. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're more than welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Still Voices Short Film Festival takes place from the 4th to the 7th of November. Check out the full programme and book tickets at stillvoicesfilmfestival.com and of course be sure to check out filmireland.net.